Hello and welcome to The Download. I'm your host, Dave Richardson, and I am joined for his regular visit by uh, Scott Lizakowski, Head of Canadian Equities at Phillips Hager and North Investments in rainy, rainy, rainy Vancouver. It's uh, here. It's a nice day out there today. Yeah, we've. Uh, I think a summer is officially over here in Vancouver. We're going to get more rain today uh, than we uh, got all summer. So couldn't think of a better thing to do on a rainy day than uh, get my coffee in my hand and have a chat about about the uh, Canadian equity market. Well, and, and specifically, because you've been doing some work on this, uh, on the energy sector itself, and, and looking at some of the, the concerns around the energy sector, some of the headwinds that they're facing, uh, even though it's been a, you know, a very strong performer this year, although you know, mostly in the, in, in the first quarter, uh, what, did, what, did, what were you taking a look at, uh, and what were your findings? Yeah, you know, as energy has been one of the best performing sectors so far this year, we often get the question of how sustainable this strength uh, in, in the share prices is. And is this something that's, uh, that we expect to continue or is this just more of more of a, a cyclical bounce? And we sort of come at it in a number of ways. And, and partly to sort of set the stage is, is to think about some of the headwinds that the industry has faced over the last several years. And and uh, see if those are those headwinds have been uh, appropriately addressed. So the, the three big reasons why the energy sector has underperformed over the last several years has been has boiled down to three things. One is um, pipelines. We've we've heard lots and read lots about uh, the lack of pipeline capacity to get the oil production out of Canada. The second piece would be profitability. And the third headwind would be emissions and and ESG and how uh, that is sort of uh, taking hold and affecting the sector. So starting with pipelines, the uh, the cancellation of the Keystone Excel pipeline at the beginning this year, that grabbed all the headlines. Uh, but quietly in the background, uh, the industry has been progressing uh, several other pipeline initiatives, one of which is a replacement of an old uh, existing pipeline uh, by Enbridge. And that's due to be in service by the end of this year, which would help alleviate some of the pipeline capacity uh, deficiencies. And then, of course, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is now owned by the Canadian government, is sort of inching along. It's still, you know, probably several years away from being in service. Um, and But if and when that does come into service, we'd see excess pipeline capacity. So a lot of that uh, news and headwinds around uh heavy oil pricing and uh, pipeline uh, price differentials, that, that will fall by the wayside when we have enough sufficient pipeline capacity in place. The second piece on profitability, because um, commodity prices have been so weak uh, over the last number of years, uh, obviously much stronger today, but, but, but have been quite weak over the last several years, um, you know, the industry is really forced to work really hard at, at, at focusing on their cost structure, uh, focusing on the efficiency in which they operate their business, the way that they spend money, and, and really making sure that they can operate and sustain uh, their levels of production in a low commodity price environment. So they're really reaping the rewards of higher uh, commodity prices uh, in their lower cost structure and, and generating a lot of free cash flow. Secondly, they're being quite disciplined about how, how what they're going to do with that free cash flow. They've They've sort of learned that the, the market is not rewarding production growth right now. Production growth comes with emissions growth, which I'll talk to in a second. Uh, so they're focused on repairing balance sheets, buying back stock, returning capital to shareholders. And then the final piece is emissions and, and the ESG framework. As we know, that more and more investors are getting uh, 
uh, integrating ESG framework into their investment decisions. And, and that, that, you know, lands squarely in the face of, of the energy sector. You know, as you can imagine, oil sands uh, producers are very large emitters of carbon. And so that, that's a very uh, focal uh, point for, you know, applying an ESG framework. And, and the Canadian energy industry has been very hard at work at this over the last several years, um, you know, and mo- mo- basically several decades. But, but specifically over the last sort of five to seven years, they've significantly re- reduced their carbon emissions. You know, they're down to kind of 25, 30 percent. They're still pretty high from an absolute basis, but, but the industry is working very, very hard on a number of technologies and improvements in the way that they operate to help reduce emissions. They've reduced their water consumption by close to 50%, which, you know, water doesn't get talked about as much as carbon does, but I think it's it's going to gain importance uh, in the eyes of, of the, you know, investors in, in, in the ESG framework. And if you sort of stack it all up when we're thinking about ESG scores, like for some from some of the third-party rating agencies, um, Canada stacks up really, really well when compared to some of their global peers on an ESG scoring front, both on envir- environmental, social, and governance issues. So... I think, you know, the, the Canadian energy sector, you know, while there's lots of concerns about, you know, peaking oil demand at some point in the future and emissions, the, the, the energy sector in Canada is working very, very hard to earn the right uh, to produce, you know, uh, and be a producer of oil in, in today's environment. So um, it's, it's very interesting to see. And, and you, you kind of touched on 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 what my my, my next question was going to be, and 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 I, and I I'd have to say something that that a lot of people think is ultimately holding back this sector, uh, which is that perception that at some point down the road we hit peak demand, uh, we're just not going to need as much oil as we had, or maybe we're not going to need any oil, and these are stranded assets, right? These this the, these yeah. these companies ultimately go away unless they evolve in some way. You you've done some some thinking about that as well. Yeah, it's a it's a question we get off often. You know, uh, I don't think anyone disagrees that oil demand will peak at some point. Uh, you know, probably in our lifetimes in the near future. Uh, in fact, um, and and that you know the, there's a risk that these assets will be stranded. So we sort of tried to answer that in a in a couple different ways. One would just be thinking about you know the cost structure and um, you know sort of fully burdening the cost structure. Uh, with the cost of carbon and the cost to reduce uh, emissions, you know, I talked about the Canadian energy industry being uh, fighting really hard and working really hard to to earn the right to produce those last barrels, even as demand peaks and then and then subsequently declines. You know, they, they've made very bold um, commitments to you know get to net zero even, and that you know that you see a lot in the press about some of these global super majors or multinational energy companies where the courts are forcing them or activist investors are forcing them to reduce their emissions. The Canadian producers are doing it on their own and they're making very bold uh, statements about how they want to run their business. Like an oil sands company reducing their emissions to net zero is quite the claim. They don't claim to get there in the next five to 10 years, but they claim to get there over time. And so when we think about adding that to the cost structure, so um, you know, right now on a per barrel basis, the Canadian producers on average sort of need about 35 to $40 a barrel to cover their, you know, their operating costs, their overhead costs to run their business, uh, interest costs, et cetera. Um, and then also the cost to maintain that level of production. It's about the 35 to $40 per barrel range. And then we start adding to that some of these costs. Um, you know, you have a progressive carbon tax in Canada that adds a couple of dollars to the per barrel cost. So if we factor that in, 
um, I mentioned that companies are are have goals to get to net zero. To get to net zero carbon emissions from a, for an oil sands producer is going to take a significant amount of capital investment to capture the carbon, sequester it, or make make alterations to your your business process. So, um, you know, it's it's still early days, but that could be upwards to twenty to fifty billion dollars over the course of twenty or thirty years. So we add that to the cost structure, um, and that adds another couple dollars. And then the other thing is thinking about, are these assets going to be stranded? So if, if oil demand peaks and, you know, our shareholders and debt holders going to be left kind of holding the bag. So the yeah. other piece that we added to the cost structure is the burden of, can they generate enough free cash flow on a per barrel basis to pay back all of the debt and buy back all of the shares? So basically return all of the debt and equity uh, holders value to, to the respective holders. Uh, and can they do that over the next 10 years? A fairly aggressive assumption that companies aren't likely to do that, but just for a mathematical exercise. So that adds another kind of $15 per barrel. So when you stack it all up, you take that, you know, the current cost structure of $35 to $40 a barrel, and we kind of get to something that's in the $55 to $60 a barrel, which is lower than what we're seeing today. But if you if you sort of think about even in a peaking demand environment, um, you know, oil prices, you know, if you think they're going to be over 55 or $60 a barrel, the Canadian producers will be able to produce, reduce their carbon emissions, pay a carbon tax and pay back all of their capital to debt and share uh, equity shareholders. Uh, that's a pretty impressive uh, feat to do at, at 55 to $60. So I don't believe that that these assets will be stranded unless we see oil prices significantly lower than that. And, and and Scott, is it is it is it fair to say that um, that uh, along with recognizing what the future brings, Canadian producers are are have, have focused on reducing emissions, reducing their carbon footprint, kind of doing things the right way um, in, in, within this industry that is you know let, let's say it's, it's controversial um, in in today's world with the focus on climate change and such, uh, but but it but it's also been um, you know, investors who have stayed invested in these companies and who hold seats of power, uh, like, like like an asset manager who's invested in these companies, uh, that can can have a, a healthy influence on the direction that these companies are taking in terms of managing their business. Is that is that not fair to say? Yeah, and that's you know that's really the direction that the the sort of integration of ESG is is sort of taking things, which is you know quite nice to see. Um, you know, in the past, there was sort of the decision to divest from the sector um, and, and a number of, of uh, pools of capital and, and asset owners did make that decision. But but uh, what I think is sort of a bet would lead to better outcomes is to sort of, you know, take the approach that us and other, uh, you know, institutional investors are taking and and sort of integrate ESG into your investment framework and hold, really hold these companies accountable uh, for the commitments that they've made in terms of emissions reductions and and board representation, diversity, inclusion, safety is a is a is a huge aspect of, of of for these businesses. So, I think that as as institutional investors, we can we could really play an important role in holding these companies accountable. You know, if you if you divest your shares, you're not too sure whose hands they're going to go into, and th- those new shareholders may not have the same. Uh, requirements and may not hold these companies to the same standard that that we would. So we we believe that um, you know by integrating the ESG framework into our investment decisions, holding these companies accountable through engagement and, and dialogue with management teams and and boards, um, we can help 
you know, make, make sure that they follow through on the commitments they've made, whether it's a net zero or an emissions reductions or a, a diversity inclusion policy on their board, and even kind of push them to sort of, you know, maybe extend or um, in, even, you know, reach even further in terms of some of these policies. So I think we can actually lead to better outcomes by staying invested and staying engaged uh, with these companies and really holding them to a higher standard. Yeah, and, and, I, and I guess what's nice for Canadian investors um, in, in today's world with just the proliferation of, of different choice and options around investing is you can choose to, to approach this industry the way we, we just talked about, which is through engagement, ownership, and influence, or you've got lots of options to invest in that are fossil fuel free and, and you, can, you can push this sector to the sideline in your investment strategy if that's what you choose to do. Uh, and there's different approaches that uh, that work for for everyone and their own objectives. Yeah, that's right, Dave. So, Scott, uh, you know, I know you're you're uh, you're obviously a, a, an expert in Canadian investing, and and the energy sector is a big part of the Canadian economy and the and the Canadian market. So it's uh, it's something that we certainly pay attention to, and we're always happy to have you come and uh, and update us on on some of your thinking because because uh, uh, the may not be a better uh, better voice in Canada around the uh, around investing in the in the Canadian market. So always great to talk to you. Thanks Dave, thanks for having me. This recording has been provided by RBC Global Asset Management Inc for informational purposes only and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. You should consult your own legal, accounting, tax, investment or financial planning advisors before engaging in any transactions. RBC Global Asset Management is the asset management division of Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, which includes RBC Global Asset Management, Inc., RBC Global Asset Management, U.S., Inc., RBC Global Asset Management, U.K. Limited, RBC Global Asset Management, Asia Limited, and Blue Bay Asset Management, LLP, which are separate but affiliated subsidiaries of RBC. RBC Phillips Hager & North Investment Council, RBC PH&NIC, RBC Global Asset Management, Inc., and Royal Bank of Canada are all separate corporate entities that are affiliated. RBC PH&NIC is a member company of RBC Wealth Management, a business segment of Royal Bank of Canada.